0: And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. For those of you who are first-time listeners to our podcast, I'm Paul Merriman, and my job, along with the help of Chris Petterson and Daryl Balls and Craig Apple, our job is to try to show you ways that you can improve your expected future returns. Obviously, nobody knows the future, but we see ourselves as market historians. Uh, We are not investment advisors. Uh, We are not professors. Uh, We are well-meaning, thoughtful people who have found ways to help you do better. Now, with that in mind, I just want you to know while we have Recorded over 500 podcasts. That this one may not be the most important podcast that I've ever done because I've said that a number of times over the last 10 years, and this is our 10th year as a foundation, Financial Education Foundation. But I've said that. I've said that about the ultimate buy and hold strategy. I've said that about to fun strategies, and all sorts of studies that made me believe this information was just over-the-top important to you. But today, while I don't know if this is the most important podcast, I can tell you it is the most fun, because it is all about that very thing that, that, that really floats my boat, and that is sharing information that I do think will make a difference for you, in many cases for your children, in many cases for your grandchildren. And there are really, when it comes to what we trust, it's about the numbers. We don't trust sales pitches. We've been burned, all of us, more than once by exciting sales pitches. Uh, We really have a great deal of trust in the past, in the history of investing. And yes, what happened 50 years ago, day by day, has so little to do with today, except that 50 years ago, the volatility of the market was the volatility of the market, and that volatility remains, sometimes high, sometimes low, sometimes in between, But prices go up and they go down. And it's amazing how today looks like the past once you start looking at the past. But I look at the past and we look at the past in two ways. We think in terms of the history of investing, but then we also think about the math of investing. John Bogle was always talking about uh, the math, the numbers. And in many ways, when you're dealing with the unknown, it is those numbers, the math, that becomes more important. And so a lot of what I'm going to talk about today will have to do with the math, but I want to start with a table that many of you have seen before. And it is purely about math, because while we think it has some historical reality built into it, you certainly, when you find out what we talk about, will say, well, that's just the numbers. That's not about real life. Well, uh, let me talk about the real life I would love to have you find, and that is if I could help you or Chris or Daryl or Craig or anybody else who's got good information about the past, if we could show you how to make a little bit more money on your investments, maybe sometimes that means taking a little bit more risk. Sometimes that does not mean you take more risk, but you simply do something that is smarter and is obvious. I mean, I could say that I I could guarantee you can go to a bank and get CDs that give different rates of return, and if you buy the CD, the certificate of deposit, that pays a higher rate of return, I guarantee that's what you're going to get. Now, let me talk now about what will be, uh, we'll have links to a bunch of tables uh, in the notes to this presentation. But, this one it says it's table one. We probably have fifty table ones, but this is a table one, and I can see right now. First thing that pops up is a typo. I can't believe it, but there's a typo, and uh, it's it's the impact, not impact. It's the impact of an additional one half percent in annual return. And the point that we have been making for years about this table is just applying simple math to a couple of assumptions. One assumption is two people put away $6,000 a year. They do that for 40 years. That kind of feels like what we might think of in terms of, uh, of money that people will save in an IRA. By the way, wouldn't make any sense to me uh, 50 years ago because when my, my first IRO, I think, was either fifteen hundred or two thousand dollars, and that was the most you could put in. In fact, it's even more than six thousand now, but assume that six thousand dollar annual investment. And you do that the first of the year, and you do it for 40 years, and you start investing at 25 and you do that till you're 65 and then you retire and you live for 30 years and then you die and you leave money to other people or you spend it all. And during that period that you were accumulating money, that 40-year period, you got an 8% compound rate of return. Now that's really a very fine return. I want you to make a lot more than that certainly for the early years of your investing But we do know that theoretically, the way that target date funds are built, it would not be unreasonable, based on history, that for 40 years you could get an 8% compound rate of return. Now, this assumes every year is 8%, and this is why this is simply about the math. It's not about reality, but we're going to keep the math consistent, in other words, We're going to look at one person who got 8% a year for the 40 years of accumulation, and then they retire, and they get 6% a year, but they got to live off of that money, so they take out 4% a year, which means the account keeps growing at 2% a year, and if you pay out 4% a year over 30 years, after having the value of your portfolio at retirement about $1.7 million, and you take out the 4%, you do it for 30 years, you get a little tiny bit of growth. By the time you were 95, you will have taken over $2.6 million out, and you will have left about $2.8 million to others. And oh my gosh, does that make a difference when that's a Roth IRA? Huh? Okay. Now that's good. You... Retire with $1.7 million almost, you pay out $2.6 million and you give $2.8 million to children and charities. So what the real return, the real return for your investments uh, are the addition of the money you leave to others and the money you spent. That's it. And it doesn't matter what happened in between. And if you add those two together, that would be about $5.5 million off of your $240,000 investment. Now, boy, are there easy ways that would be more comfortable to, uh, to make money, but you know, 8% means you're going to have some money, at least partially in equities. You're going to have some bouncing around, but in this study, there's no bouncing. It's straight line up. a year, then 6%. But the big what if, and it's really what our organization is about. What if instead of 8%, it was 8.1, 8.2, 8. 8, whatever, 9. What if there was a way you could make a better rate of return? We all know that lots of people made more than 8%. But the math of it is, if you could make an extra half of 1% during the accumulation phase of your investing, and then during retirement and the distribution stage of investing, you made 6.5 instead of 6, so you have just upped it a little bit. And I say a little bit, I mean, what it does to your lifetime income and your giving What it does to it is it increases it a lot, but at the time it's happening, it doesn't feel like a lot. It's this magic of compounding, and why at age 79 myself, I am so jealous of 21-year-old people because they've got so much compounding ahead of them. So what happens if you make eight and a half instead of eight? Instead of 1.7 million, you end up with 1.9 plus million. Instead of taking withdrawals of 2.6 million, you take withdrawals of 3.2 plus million. And instead of leaving 2.8 million, you leave 3.7 plus million. And at the end of this period, this life of saving, investing, and spending, We have to keep reminding ourselves as young investors, we are putting money away to spend. The saving is just to give it a chance to be worth something later when you're not being paid for the good deeds that you do. And I hope you will. But the total between what you have at death and leave to others and what you take out instead of $5.5 is almost $7 million. And that's a big deal. That is math that's important. It is my job, and Chris, and Daryl, and Craig's job to figure out where can we find an extra one-tenth of 1%. And those of you who have watched my presentation or heard about the ultimate buy-and-hold strategy know even one-tenth of 1% Is a big deal. But if we extend the math to doing more for us than it does in that table, we could look at it in a number of different ways. I mean, we could, for example, make the assumption that instead of getting 8.5%, we would get 8. We'd find a way to make a whole full percentage more. Now, I've seen times, just for what it's worth, when the difference between CD rates from different banks, the difference was more than a 1%. So I know there's an extra 1% out there somewhere. But when we simply apply the math to it, and instead of eight and a half, you make nine. Instead of six and a half, you make seven. Now, instead of ending up with about $9 million, I mean $7 million, you end up uh, with about $12 million. Oh, I forgot to mention I forgot to mention that we did a second thing. It's not possible to go uh, because of another half a percent uh, up to $12 million, but I can tell you this. That if on top of investing that $6,000 a year, you increase the contributions by 3% a year. See, now you're applying math to things you control. It is not depending upon the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or some individual stock. It's about you and your saving rate. And by the way, that may just be a matter of trying to, in essence, keep up with inflation. So, what do we know? We know that between a combination of making an extra 1% and putting in 3% a year extra each year, you go from about 7 million to 12.4 million. We are talking about a lot of extra money, life changing money life-changing for you, maybe for your family. We'd like to think it's all for the good, isn't always, but your family and the people and the things that you care about in your life. And that, by the way, is Table 3. And by the way, I might mention, if you looked at Table 2, you would find out that if all you did was went from 7 to 9 and you didn't add the extra 3% a year, and by the way, it sounds really, really uh, like something you should be able to do when you think that you go from investing 6000 to $6,180, $15 more a month in the second year. But you go from about seven about seven to nine. You The total improvement for having made 1% more without putting the extra money in Took you from seven to about nine, about two million dollars, and then you pick up uh, another three, approximately. Uh, once you add that three percent raise every year, and these are all about you. Now the market's got to cooperate, but this eight percent or eight and a half or nine, again, that's what you could get in a target date fund. A target date fund that you have to make one lousy decision in your total life. Well, you have to make two. One is I want to retire in 2065 or 2070 and I want to put away 10% of my income or I want to put away five and I want to raise it 1% a year for the first five years. You're making those decisions and those decisions are just absolutely huge. And by the way, Daryl gives us another decision we could have made. We could have waited. We could have either enjoyed or paid bills or whatever we did with the extra money, but instead of putting that money away, starting at 25, we waited for five years. Now, the good news is you had more money to spend, whether it's for paying bills or traveling or whatever it might want to be. But I can tell you what the cost of not doing that for five years. And what Daryl assumed here in this table number four is that you increased whatever you started with, you increased by 3% a year, and you got 9%, not 8.5, you got 9. And I'm going to show you in this presentation today dozens of ways that you could make extra money. Dozens. Some of these I'm talking about right now are things that you could do that have to do with you. Other things will be with what the market is likely to do or not do, whichever it might be. But here's what we know. And I love, I just love the difference in these two numbers. By waiting five years to to, to, to get started, the difference that you put in is about 362, almost 363,000 versus 452,000. So you gave, you gave away. You invested about another $100,000 over uh, that uh, 40-year period instead of the 35. And so what you had at Retirement because you put away that money, you had about another million dollars by starting at 25 instead of 30. And the value at death was 6.8 million, almost 6.9 million, versus 4.3 million. And the money you took out was about 3.5 million for getting the late start. 5.6 5.6 million almost for starting the five years younger. Uh, when I say that I'm envious of your youth, uh, by the way, even if you're 70, I'm, I'm envious, but the bottom line is, is that with time on your side, boy, what the math does for you. By the way, the math is easy. I just put it in my calculator, and there it is. Don't have to worry about bear markets. Don't have to worry about health problems, losing the job. None of the realities of life. But I will tell you to the extent that we're going to do what we can to corral the world and have it work for us rather than against us. Remember, corporations want you to work for them. Not for you. For them. They want you to spend your money for them. And, and your friends don't even mind it when you spend your money on them. But you want to be thinking about how to be fair to you. Now, I've got, let's see, I've got one more table in here about this uh, math that I want to share with you. And uh, what Daryl did was he finally, in table six, uh, he takes that delayed start down to one year. And he shows you what you would have made if you delayed by one year and started at when you were 26 instead of at 25. Cost you about 600000 if you're in that category of making eight during the accumulation and six during the distribution. All the way up to More than a million dollar difference When you make the 9% And the 7% 9% during accumulation And 7% during distribution Now that's a big deal A delay of one year Could cost you as much as a million dollars For what was at that time A $6,000 investment So i I hope you enjoy tables one through six that Daryl put together, because that's the part that's about the math. Now, I'll have a few other points here to make that are uh, are, are basically about math, but many of these are about decisions you're going to make that are going to, uh, I think, make a million-dollar difference. Uh, I'm always, because I know how easy it is to make an extra million dollars on paper in the calculator, it's a piece of cake. And I'm not suggesting that it's a piece of cake to you in your life for if you're a 25 year old and you're looking out uh, to age 95, you know, it's not going to be smooth sailing all the way. One of the reasons I tell people that you should think in terms of having more than enough when you do your plan. More than enough. Not because you're greedy and you want stuff. It's because life deals us so many unexpected things. So if you sit down at age 25 and you decide uh, to, to, to make a budget for the next 40 years... I'll bet you that maybe one out of a hundred people would put in there, okay, now I got a plan for that divorce that's coming up later. No, we don't plan for a divorce. We're not going to get a divorce. But that's something that I think happens to half the people who get married. But I suspect it's rarely in the plan. So, here are, on top of the math, ways, mathematical ways to improve your financial future, which means you've got to do something about it to make it do that. Here are some million-dollar decisions. Now, you'll recognize these, some of them from, we're talking millions, the free book that we provide in a PDF or we give it to you uh, in an audio file. Uh, it, and by the way, you can go to buy it if you want to buy it from, from at Amazon. We're talking millions, 12 simple ways to supercharge your retirement. And I wish we had called it supercharge your investments. but That's not what we call it because a lot of people when they're 25 are not interested in retirement, but they are interested in investments. But here's what we know. The first million dollars that you will make, the easy pickings is you put away $100 a month, you make 8% for 40 years, you take out 4% a year and have it grow at 6% for the rest of your life and you live for 30 years and what ends up happening is between what you take out and what you leave to others, there's your first million dollars. It takes $100 a month at 8%. That's a million-dollar decision to get started. In a while, I'll be talking about starting at birth. And I'm literally, when I say hours, it's really probably days away from having, we're going to have a new grandchild in the family. And so it's a start of of another 100 years, I hope. And the second decision that we make that's huge is when we start. I already made that point based on the math of the implication of that extra five years. If you could start five years earlier, there's so many things that could happen because when you're really young... You should be all in equities. Now I'm talking about the money for the long term, not for the short term. But there's a there's a lot of time ahead of you that 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 that, that you can just let that equity go. Don't worry about the day to day flip flops of the market. And That first five years could be the best five years the stock market will ever see, and you will be there. And I lived through that five-year period from 1995 to 1999. Five years, over 28% a year compound rate of return for the S&P 500. The third decision, and I made the point, or I wanted to make the point if I missed it in the introduction uh, about math, that I'm looking for an extra million dollars out of these steps that we take. And every half a percent has the ability over time to create an extra million dollars. So when you come to the fork in the road on the game board where you can choose between investing long-term in stocks or bonds, I know you know that stocks make more money. I suspect that you also know that not only do, do stocks make more money, but if you look at a diversified portfolio of stocks where you're not counting on any one company to get you there, that the worst 40-year period starting in 1928, the worst 48 period was a gain of about 9% a year. We've been talking about eight. And the best in the S&P 500 was 12 and a half. So for the long term, it looks like at a minimum, you've got about a 5% advantage over bonds for a 40-year period. Now, if in fact I am right, and the math is right, that if you could make an extra half a percent, that picking stocks over bonds would give you 10 of those extra half a 1%. So if I'm really talking about an extra million dollars uh, from a half a percent, that suggests that, you know, there you go, $10 million. That's the fork in the road. Actually, a bit literally, if you look at what you would end up with in bonds you'd end up with about a million between what you get and what you leave to others. Well, by the way, if what you got your money in is bonds for the rest of your life, I'm guessing not only is it going to be a skinny retirement, but you might not leave a lot of money to others. But that extra 5% does not historically translate into uh, about uh, $10 million. It's actually uh, it turns out to be uh, about $24 million when you look at a lifetime of being in the market. Particularly, by the way, if you look at the average return of the stock market, the average 40-year return for the S&P 500 is 11%, not 9 not 10 And in fact, the last 52 years, It's compounded at about 11%, at least through the end of last year. Now, another fork in the road you come to is the decision of whether to put your money all in one company and hit the home run. I mean, you're smart enough to know what good companies are and bad companies are. Enron was a bad company. It went out of business. Looks like Microsoft is a really good company. What is so interesting is Enron was in the top seven companies, public companies in the country in terms of size, before it became nothing. And here's what the academics teach us. And by the way, I will say that if there is any decision that is going to help things go your way, it will be to follow the guide of the academic community, not Wall Street, not your next-door neighbor. There is no more savvy group of people about the past than the academics. Nobody knows the future. But I trust the, the, the calculations and, and the, de, the, the decisions that the academics come to Because they know this, they know that of all the public companies that came from 1928 until the study I'm referencing here is 2016, fully half of the companies didn't make any money. In fact, 94% of them made an average return of 3% a year. And it was a handful of companies that made up the difference and made the market create a 10% a year return, or better. Well, or worse, depending on the period of time. But, but, if you own all the companies in the S&P 500, then you are guaranteed that return of, You know, when I say guaranteed, I got my my own hands around my own throat saying don't say that paul stop no uh, it's guaranteed less the expenses that the people who who create the portfolio that mimic the s&p 500 and there are people that do that for almost no fee and some claim to do it for no fee we'll talk about that in a second too so What the academics tell us is the people that have more diversification, more companies in the portfolio are probably going to have a better return over a lifetime. And then we run into asking ourselves, when we look at the 40-year returns, remember I mentioned the S&P 500? compounded at 11? Well, there's a fork in the road. The S&P 500 is made up of really, really good companies that are really, really exciting companies that everybody wants to invest in, and then they have some companies that not everybody is excited about, but maybe they pay a decent dividend, or they've been around for a long time, and they, they, they have a name people like, and they have, and they're big, by the way. They got to be fairly good size to be in the S&P 500. And that that group of stocks compounded on average uh, 11% over all the 40-year periods. But if you looked at only the value companies, only the companies in the S&P 500 that are out of favor, that they some people call them the dogs. They were some of them are called the dogs of the Dow companies that people generally don't want so much because they're not very exciting, and their future doesn't look outstanding like you might think in terms of Tesla and other companies of that sort and It turns out the average return for those companies that are out of favor or however they are priced, and they are priced at in essence about. Half the value, if you look at what people are willing to pay for the earnings of these companies. But the compound rate of return of those large value companies, the average, 13.5. Well, if I'm looking for a little bit of my portfolio, or maybe even a lot, to be in something other than the S&P 500 because if I mix them together and part gets 11 and part gets 13.5, it sounds like I'm doing better, probably. And if I'm willing to, to invest in smaller companies that are some growth and some value, That compound rate of return is about 13.7, a little more than large-cap value. But the gold ring, the gold ring of asset equity asset classes historically, going back to 1928, small-cap value, average compound rate of return for 40 years, 16.2. Now, it's interesting because another decision we have to make is what kind of returns do we plan for the future? Because that would, that would have some impact on how much you save and how much you have in stocks, etc. Now, Is the small cap value index likely to compound at 16.2? Is the large cap value likely to compound at 13.5? Is the S&P 500 likely to compound at 11? Is small cap blend likely to compound at 13.7? Nobody knows. But most of us don't trust those big numbers. And would rather move forward kind of based on hoping for the best but preparing for the worst. And the worst for small cap value was a 40 year period that it made 11.9. Okay. Okay. And that's why, that's one of the reasons that I'm okay thinking that small cap value might compound at 12. And in fact, it depends on what small cap value index you look at, but the one that I have tracked for many years compounded at about 14, since 1970. Now, those are all legitimate ways to up the return. Add some small cap blend, add some small cap value, add some large cap value. So I can look back to 1970, and the good news is we have a table for you. It's H1. H1 represents the sound investing portfolios, and we take you up basically to nine forks in the road, and we give you a whole bunch of information about those nine forks. And each one is viewed over a 52-year period. I'm not going to go into all the detail of what you see except to say you will see the return of every year. You will see the impact of all the losses. You will see the impact of all the gains. You will see all sorts of things that will give you an idea of what the good and bad times look like, including the best and the worst 10-year periods. You can compare them so easily, but I can tell you this if you pick the S&P 500 that compounded at 11 over that 52 year period we're talking about here, I can tell you if you built the portfolio using 10 different equity asset classes, it would have been about 12.3. If you looked at the strategy that uses only four funds, some U.S., some international, 12.4, an all-U.S. portfolio, 12.5, half in the S&P 500, half in small-cap value, 12.7, an all-value portfolio worldwide, 13, an all-value portfolio U.S., 13.3%, 13.3 and all small cap value US, that's all worldwide small cap value 14%, and finally the all US small cap value of 14.2. Those are all choices that you have. The problem is, and by the way, we even tell you which ETFs to put the money into which funds at Vanguard, which funds at Fidelity, which funds at Schwab. And we do it without cost because our goal is to help you solve these problems. And here's the challenge I have, and it's really a tough challenge. There are a whole bunch of you who all you would really like for us to do is to tell you what to do and basically uh, not ask too many questions. That's what you want. The people we are built to help are the people who say, hmm, that's interesting. I'd like to know more. We are built to give a lot of information, but we also know there are people who are, in fact, well, what do I do if I don't want to do ever have any responsibility but just put it away in some sort of an investment that, that I can trust is going to do well for me because, because you believe it will? Well, of course, the fact that I believe it will doesn't make it so, but I can tell you that in a few minutes I'll talk about that single fund that you could simply put your money in and never come back to our website and never talk to a stockbroker or never talk to a money manager. All I want you to know is, is that you have the choice, not just whether you save or spend or not, whether you have it all in stocks or all in bonds, etc., but what stocks you have it in, and it makes a difference. And then another decision that you can make, and boy, do we have tables to show you this. We have tables that will show you, in fact. In fact, another set a, a, a link that will take you to some other tables will take you to the fine-tuning tables that we put out. There are a whole bunch of them. For every one of these strategies, these combinations of equity uh, portfolios, we in fact have a table that shows what happens if you have a whole bunch of bonds and you have a little bit of stocks let's say 90-10, then you look at 80-20, and then 70-30, and 60-40, and 50-50, all the way up to 100% stocks. Why do we do that? So we can show you the implications of risk and return every time you add another 10% equity. And I'm just going to tell you that if you're using the four fund U.S.-only portfolio, which, by the way, is some big and some small and some great growth and some value. That's all it is, with indexes, with low expenses. Talk about that in a second. I know when I look back at the last 50 years, if I look at a 50-50 strategy, half in stocks, half in bonds, that what I would have made with 50-50 stocks and bonds and and the four-fund strategy in the 50% that's in stocks, I would have gotten a 10.2% compound rate of return. But if I had been willing to take a little more risk, and it really isn't a lot, and you'll see the number right there, how much more pain you needed to have to get the gain. It was 10.7% compound rate of return. What is 10.2? Subtracted from 10.7? Yes, one half of one percent. So there is a fork in the road where it would have a difference. And you might say, well, okay, but I'm closer to retirement than I am to starting out. Well, it turns out that during the distribution period, and we have the tables for that, We have a 3% extraction rate, and a 4, and a 5, and a 6. We have them fixed. We have them flexible. We allow you to just turn these numbers inside out based on the historical returns, day by day, day, year by year, etc. What do we know? The difference between a 50-50 strategy and a 60-40 strategy over a 30-year period starting in 1970. Yeah, could start in 1971 or 72. We have a calculator you can do that, but I'm going to tell you right now, if you started with a million dollars and you took out 4% a year and you adjusted it for inflation every year, that over the 30-year period at the end of 30 years, you would have the 50-50, 9.8 million, the 60-40, 11.7. There's that million dollars one more time because you were a little more aggressive in retirement. Lots of people have 60-40 in retirement. Lots of people have 50-50. Lots of people have 40-60. Now, another, another way to make more money, and certainly from everything I know about the past, it could be a million dollar difference. And that is whether you keep your money in taxable accounts or you put them in tax deferred, like an IRA, like a 401k. Now, this is way too easy. What complicates it is that And the reason people like taxable money instead of tax-deferred inside of a 401k is not as easy to get at. There's a penalty if you take it out. And if you take it out, you're taxed on everything you take out, 100% profits. So, you know, you just get sliced and diced between taxes and penalties. So some people say, I'm just going to keep my money taxable and that's fine. But you'll probably, on average, it'll probably cost you about 1% a year. Now, this is one of those areas where the answer could be a million different numbers, because people have different investments, they have different tax rates, different amounts of money they need to take out, different levels of, of income they make that put them in a particular tax bracket but for most of us that tax deferred putting that money away and boy I did as soon as I could and for my kids as soon as I could they make they would make money I would I would match it up to whatever the maximum amount was that they earned and qualified for an IRA and I'll tell you about an even more exciting decision that I'm making in the coming days, but the point is that tax deferred is great, but you know, there's another fork in the road. I'm I'm sorry to to complicate matters, but there's also the possibility of tax-free. I mean, think of that. Invest and never have to pay taxes on the profits from that money Because that's the choice you have when you, not all 401ks, but most 401ks, certainly with big companies, have a Roth choice and a non-Roth choice. The Roth choice, you don't get to deduct the money that you put in there. The non-Roth choice, you get to deduct the money from your income so you'll get maybe some sort of a, a, a tax refund. But you give up that tax refund. That money now is hidden from tax, at least under today's tax law, without any taxes. And there are other benefits, like you don't have to take a minimum required distribution. So that's another million-dollar decision. And and let me just, i got to tell you, When you're old like I am, you've been through times where you've seen inflation go through what it's doing right now. Nothing new going on as far as I'm concerned. And if tax rates, marginal tax rates, go up to 60 or 70 or 80 or 90%, it's business as usual because I lived through that as well. To the extent that you can get money put aside in a Roth IRA. And by the way, Any young person who's in a low tax bracket where the refund is going to be meaningless, oh, it's a terrible decision not to do a Roth. I mean, a Roth is a slam dunk when you have low income, low income taxes. And then another decision, and this definitely is a one percenter, And that is whether or not you're going to use index funds or you're going to use funds that are actively managed. Actively managed funds have higher expenses. Guess what? One, the easiest way for you to make an extra half a percent is not pay some management company running an actively managed fund. 1% 1% or 0.8% or 1.2% or sometimes 2% versus a fund that holds all the companies in a particular asset class. And you're, you're, you're not paying 1.8. You're paying maybe 0.8. 8 one hundredths of 1%. It is so easy to save a half a percent when you when you think about that fork in the road, am I going to go the index route? Oh, by the way, if you go the index route, you also get more diversification. Whoa. And remember, more diversification is supposed to lead to more returns, depending on what kind of asset classes you use. And there's a ton of evidence that that is so when it comes to putting investing in the hands of an individual. And, and, and by the way, there's, 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 even, there's even more. When you look at an index fund and you look at Morningstar and it will tell you what the tax-adjusted return is for people who are sitting on these investments in a taxable account, it is almost 1% different. So you can, in an index fund, you can maybe save 1% a year in taxes if you're in a taxable account. That's big. You can save about a half of 1% because the expenses are lower, and you can also potentially make more because you have more diversification. And there's another reason it's an amazing decision. is because people who put money in index funds trust them more than they do about the actively managed fund. They have to, because when the actively managed fund manager is not doing well, hey, what's going on here? What's the deal? Is that person uh, having a bad year? Got something else on his or her mind? Maybe going through a divorce, I don't know, but there's something wrong with what's going on because they're not doing as well as the market. And that's the nature of actively managed funds. From time to time, they don't look like the market. And the people who manage those funds will say, well, of course they don't because. I'm investing for the long term, but the investor so often is worried about the short term. And with the index fund, you're just getting the market return. When the market is down, you're going to be down, guaranteed. When the market is up, you're going to be up. And according to a report by SPIVA, that is S-P-I-V-A, V V is Victor, there's about one out of ten actively managed funds that could beat the indexes. So passively managed funds as a decision over active is huge. And I once, we once wrote an article about the number one reason to buy index funds. When you own an index fund, in theory, no salesperson will call because you don't need a salesperson you got the index fund. You've decided that's the best you can be. And that, yes, somebody out there is going to do better, but you know what? I'm feeling pretty good being in the top 10%. That's okay with me. It may be one of the few times in my life that I'll ever be and expect to be in the top 10%. I never was in the top 10%, ever. When you were called Hypoctus as a kid, you were not in the top 10%. When you were called Pudge as a kid, you were not in the top 10%. Then we have the decision, fork in the road, pay a load to buy a mutual fund, or don't pay a load. A load is a commission. A load is defined in the dictionary as a heavy burden. Well, a load in an equity fund where they're going to take 5.75% right off the top for having told you this is the fund you should be in, and shame on them for not telling you to be in an index fund, but they got to make a living so they tell you to be in this actively managed fund. Remember, having higher expenses for the long term, higher taxes for the long term, if in a taxable account. And now you gotta pay 5.75%? Well, wait a minute. I mean you only pay it once. Come on. I mean, this is for the long term because I believe the salesperson will say, I believe that I have picked a fund that's gonna do better than the market. So you're gonna get a return. You're gonna get you're gonna get paid back. In fact, you'll make that. $575 back in no time. Well, just just so you know, that $575 is gone forever. And the impact of that is if that actively managed fund can make the same return as the index, you will, for the rest of your life, make a half a percent less than the market because what was a $10,000 investment is now 9500 less, a few bucks, okay? And that money is going to compound, just like any other half a percent, is going to compound for somebody else rather than you. And I am not a bad guy who just, you know, hates everybody who makes a commission. I don't feel that way at all. But they also have the ability to be in the business without making a commission because a lot of people do that. And that's another fork in the road that you will take. Well, I might as well talk about that right now. You do it yourself or you pay a manager to do it for you. And by the way, I can, give you, uh, I can give you 25 reasons why you probably need somebody to do it for you because you won't do it yourself. You've proven that in many cases. Or if I talk to you for 10 minutes and you're talking about trying to beat the market or you're trying to you're talking about being afraid and wanting to get out of the market and get back in later, I'm just, I'm just seeing all those kind of bad things that happen to people happening to you. And yes, you probably be better off having somebody else do it. Now you will come to another fork where you pay that person by the hour or you pay them 1% a year. Most people who hire somebody to do it pay the 1% a year or some such figure. Okay, maybe it's a half a percent a year. But I just want us to understand that 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 cost of that 1% over a lifetime. This is above and beyond the mutual fund managers because people need help determining what funds to be in and when to be in them and when to get out. There's a whole bunch of things that people conclude they need to be, have somebody to do it for them. But that 1% you pay for that annual management fee, you just went from a 9% return theoretically to an 8. And I was an investment manager and got paid the 1%, the firm did. And there are people, I've been gone out of that business for 10 years and I still talk to my old friends, they're still there having their money managed and happy as could be. Well, Probably not this year, they're not happy as could be, but that's not, that's not an advisor's fault. The advisor has no idea where the market's going. If they ever talk like they do, that is a fork in the road, at which point you go find somebody else because people who talk like they know where the market's going are very dangerous. So I want you in a no-load fund index fund. And for most of you, 99%, I hope you, dollar cost average. This is in some ways the toughest, the toughest decision for me to make and say this is a $1 million decision. But in a way, I want to put it together with another decision that people make, and that is the decision as to whether you want to be a market timer or a buy-and-holder. I can tell you from everything I know at age 79 and having been around this business since I was 19, when I first started investing, became a professional, so to speak, when I was 22, I will tell you that that the, the people who try to beat the market the, I'm, I don't know if it's 99% or 98%, but do-it-yourself market timers, there is no evidence that they will maintain the discipline that it takes to be a market timer. It is the hardest investment strategy in the industry. I know it well. I really do. I have been tracking market timing, and market timers since 1966. So market timing means you make decisions about when to be in and when to be out. Most people make that decision based on emotions, what I call the I can't stand it anymore feeling, the ICSIA strategy. Dollar cost average guarantees you two things. It guarantees as you're putting money away every month in your 401k or your IRA, it guarantees that you will buy more shares of whatever you're buying when the market is down. And you're buying fewer shares when the market is up. It is easy to buy shares when the market is up. What is difficult for people to do is to buy shares when the market is down. And if they had the ability to do that, it turns out they make a lot more money. One market timing decision, like to get out of the market in 2008 and still be out of the market, has cost people a fortune. Happens all the time. One out of every four or five years, the average decline in the market is about 30% on average. And sure, we'd like not. We'd like not to have to go through that and be safely on the sidelines. Another fork in the road, and boy, do I love this one. I mean, uh, I, I, I just think that if there's anything that gives me a sense of well-being about your financial future, is I know that what you could do is simply put your money into a target date fund. And it is a fund that is managed for the rest of your life just as if you were in a pension and the people managing that pension for you were pension were managing it to make sure you had the money you needed to retire on when you get there. So when you're young, they got you in stocks. Sometimes not enough stocks, but in stocks mostly, probably 90% at least. But when you get older, like for example, you can buy these target date funds. They, they, they can take you when you're 21 and take you till you're 79. If I had my, if my wife and I, if we had our money in a target date fund, Vanguard would have us 30% in equities and 70% in fixed income that would have been part of a lifetime glide path they call it you start up high and you glide down and it's one of the areas that as you follow our work in the next year i think you're going to you're going to learn some really good stuff about the glide path because it is kind of the last area where i feel like like we're not that we're letting people down but I do believe you could have a glide path that would be better than a target date fund. But you'd have to take care of that glide path. And think of the millions, it's probably hundreds of millions of people who retired after having a pension built up over their lifetime and they retire. I got two friends. They both worked for the government. They're making, I I don't know, $150,000 a year between Social Security and their pensions. They were both working. And they both invested intelligently, too. But they don't have to spend a penny of what they're making on their investments because their pension is just fine. Now, Target Date Fund allows... A person who knows nothing about investing, doesn't want anything to know about investing. But they might have a couple of questions they should be asking, like, oh, what kind of funds do you own inside your target date fund? Index funds are actively managed? Most of them used actively managed funds, X, off. You want a target date fund that uses index funds. You want a target date fund that uses very low, has very low expenses. You want a target date fund that's not trading the market. Because that costs money to do that. And you want a target date fund that has lots of, of diversification. Now, I can also be critical of target date funds because they don't have enough small cap for my blood and they don't have enough value for my blood and we make recommendations to you who want to do that and by the way, if you put ten per 90%, let's say you're saving 10%, 9% goes into the target date fund, 1% goes into small cap value, maybe 2%. Guess what? That 1% or 2% will probably give you an extra 1% to 1.5% a year return. So now instead of owning one fund, you own two funds, but it is still all mechanical because you really don't need to rebalance. Now, maybe when you get to 65, you might want to. But the good news is that if you get the free copy of We're Talking Millions, the last half of the book, Talks about target date funds and uh, the use of small cap value. Now, if you want to pay a few bucks for a book that digs a much deeper than then you go to Amazon and you buy a book called Two Funds for Life. It is the work of Chris Petterson. By the way, every penny of profit from that book goes to our foundation. Chris doesn't get a penny. Not only does he, he, he give us hundreds of hours of his time every year. And by the way, I hope if you haven't seen Chris and Daryl working with me doing a podcast, doing Q&As, I hope you will, because those two guys, they are golden. So, Target Date Fund. I got, oh, God, I didn't tell you the good news. The good news on target date funds is Wharton, out of the University of Pennsylvania, they did a study. They looked at 1.2 million 401k, well, I'm sorry, 401k investors. 1.2 million. Some of them used target date funds. Some of them used other, no target date funds and did it on their own. Some had both. But here's what I love. I love the fact that the expected rate of return of the people that use target date funds was 2.3% more on average per year over their lifetime. Okay? So why? Because... People don't, most investors really don't know a lot about investing, and what they want, they want to immediately go to safety. Get me to safety. Get me away from something that looks like I'm going to Las Vegas. Because I heard a story about people who lost everything. And it was it was this, this, this guy who invested their money and he took it all and ran. They're called Ponzi schemes. There are famous Ponzi schemes, and there are Ponzi schemes that are reported every week. If you know where to go look, where people are cheating people, there's no Ponzi scheme that I know of ever in an index fund. Um, Vanguard has, I think, $7 trillion, well, maybe it's $6 trillion now, under management, $6 trillion. Now, another fork in the road, and this one is really, really near and dear to my heart because one of the things that my wife and I do with the birth of each grandchild is set up a little account for the grandchild's retirement. Now, you don't have to put what I put in, but you don't have to put in hardly anything because that fork in the road when you're talking about a newborn child and talking about the money going until age 95, but living off of it, yes, living off of it uh, during part of that. As a matter of fact, I will tell you how to give your newborn child a $1 million payoff the year they are 70. And what you can do. Now, by the way, I am not going to stamp this with a guarantee because what will be there is a a number that is totally unknown. I'll be dead and buried for a very long period of time. And uh, I, 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 I hope the grandchild you do this with will know about it someday and you will give them a copy about we're talking millions. Okay. Here's what you do. You give $365 to your child, your son, your daughter. And you say, do me a favor. Take this $365. Open up an account at Schwab or Fidelity. Fidelity's really easy. So is Schwab. Fidelity has mutual funds with no commission. So does Schwab. And what you do is you put that $365 right now because the the small cap value ETF for mutual fund that we recommend uh, is, is a, a Avantis uh, small cap value fund or ETF. Now, that is a fund that I think... I think, could in fact compound at 12% for the next 70 years. Now, what I want you to do is to hang on to that money and let it grow. And if you have to pay a couple bucks in, in taxes because it's in your name, okay, but that's not likely. I mean, it's ETFs are very, very tax efficient. More tax efficient than a mutual fund is. Now, When that child starts making a little bit of money, now it's time to reach in and pull out that $365 that has hopefully grown to something that looks like it earned 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, something. We don't know. But whatever it is, you get it hid away into a Roth IRA as soon as you can. And you leave it there. In fact, I want you to name this Roth IRA. Uh, You'll be on it as a custodian if the child is a minor. You can do that at Schwab and at Fidelity. And then uh, what I want you to do in the name is put dash 70. Now, I'm assuming they'll let you do that. Somewhere on this account, I would like you to put the number 70 because if that $365 that you put in compounds at uh, 12%, then it would be worth over a million dollars at age 70. Bingo! That's their income from you at age 70. Now, by the way, with inflation adjustment, It'll probably be worth more, like a hundred thousand, from what we know about inflation from the past. If you only get the ten percent of the S and P five hundred, okay, it's uh, under five hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so instead of a hundred thousand, it's fifty thousand in today's dollars. Now, wouldn't that be a nice thing? You know, I came here promising how you could do, pick up an extra million dollars. Uh, My feeling is, because I've done something like this for all the grandchildren, um, and and I've done it with more than $365, but I don't have to ever give them any more money because I think they're going to be just fine. And by the way, because the kids are doing, my kids, our kids are doing fine, they should be able to take care of the educational I'm just more than happy to take care of retirement. But it's a very little bit of money. But let's say that you did that and you actually believe that 365 in the name of Johnny Smith 70, you decide the next year to do Johnny Smith 71. So you put another 365 away. You may decide when it's time to to, to put that money to work, that you will put it into an international small cap value. We recommend that as well. Or maybe you put it into uh, an emerging market uh, mutual fund, something that is likely to grow at a higher rate than the S&P 500. Or maybe if you did this every year for 10 years, you might even have one year you put it in to the S&P 500. But literally... You could set it up, and I know it's a pain in the neck to do this, but you could set up the first 20 years of retirement, one $365 investment at a time. Then, and, and, and I, I know this has been a very long, I'm sorry, it's a, a very long podcast, and I'm going to take a shortcut on the last four items. But I'm going to have, I'm going to have links to tables that reflect distribution strategies, like the difference between taking out a 4% or a 5% distribution out of a portfolio that you have set up in retirement, for what it's worth, you can end up at the end of a 30-year retirement and have $5.4 million left after starting with a million and taking out 4% a year. But if you took out 5%, you'd be broke. It's important you understand that fork in the road. That is huge. But I could also show you how you could take 5% out. And that is, instead of taking 5% and increasing it for inflation, oh, I forgot to mention that, the 4 and 5 were increased for inflation. Now, if instead of taking out 5% and increase it for inflation, what you're going to do is you're going to take 5% at the beginning of each year, what's left over from at the last of the previous year. So as the market goes up, you get 5% or more. As the market goes down, you get 5% of a lower number. So you take a cut and pay. And by the way, the way you easily get to be able to do that is to save more than you need. My wife and I faced that fork. We decided until we had um, enough that we would never worry about how much we took out. That we, we kept, I kept on working. And then when I retired 10 years ago, I promised I would never ever work for money again. And I haven't. I've held to that promise, but she had to compromise and probably allow me to work longer than she would have liked. Well, I mean, the reality is, I work longer on this on this project with the foundation than she she would like. I suspect too. But those differences, whether it's about how much you take out. Whether, it's out, whether you're taking out money on a fixed plus inflation or a flexible basis. And oh, by the way, I don't want you to, to miss the difference between taking the money out of a balanced portfolio that the equity portion is the S&P 500 or the equity portion is the U.S. four-fund strategy if we go back to 1970, and yes, it's all hypothetical, but you know the market did what it did, and it won't ever do it the same way again. It's the past is always hypothetical. But if we go back, and 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 we look at the return of the S and P 500 uh, versus the uh, U.S. four fund strategy. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, with a fixed distribution, you would have five point new five point nine million versus zero. If you compared the five percent fixed and the five percent flexible with the US four fund strategy, instead of being zero, it was four point one million and the four fund instead of being 5.9 million that it was with the S&P 500 is 7 million. I mean, you every day you are standing in front of all of these forks in the road. Whether because you, you've always got the choice. You know, I'm from an industry where anybody can step up to the window and bet on a horse. Anybody And if you're a minor and you got a custodian who will let you place bets, you can do that too. And so you always can change your path. Our work at our foundation is to get you on the right path, keep you as best we can as teachers. We are not advisors. We don't talk to people one by one. Oh, yeah, I buckle down, buckle in sometimes and end up talking to people to try to help them. But I'm not supposed to. And I'm doing my best to help fund this organization so that when I'm no longer here, there will be others carrying whatever torch we're carrying. And by the way, as far as I'm concerned, when I look at the torch that we carried And 10 years ago, when we started this foundation, we wrote and published three little books that are still available free. Uh, One is uh, Save and Protect uh, Your Money. Another is 101 Investment Decisions Guaranteed to Change Your Financial Future. And the other one is Get Smart or Get Screwed, How to Select the Best and Get the Most from Your Advisor. That's what we started with. We did not have the 700 plus podcasts and articles and the 150 plus tables. We did not have Daryl Balls. We did not have (laughs) Chris Pedersen or Craig Apple. We did not have a lifetime investment uh, uh, calculator that we have now that's available for people. We are continuing to grow and do more every year, and uh, we're happy that you're with us right at this moment. We hope if this is your first time, you'll subscribe to the letter. We hope you'll go to to iTunes or wherever you're getting your stuff and tell people that you liked what you learned here. You go to the website and go to what the link that says "Best Advice," because under "Best Advice" is the access to all of these different tables and things that I think are about those very, very major uh, forks in the road. And if you want to do something for us other than donate uh, to our nonprofit, we are a 501c3. More important than money to us is passing this information along to friends and family. One of the reasons we make We're Talking Millions free is because then you've got a PDF. And if you want to send it to 100 people at work, or 100 students in the class, or 100 friends from high school, there is no cost. And I have no idea who you're sending it to. We're happy. If you could figure out a way to give away a million books, uh, bless you, that would be wonderful. So uh, thanks for being here. It was a long one. For For those that this is the first time, please, this is much longer than normal But this is, like I said, I came here to have fun, and I had a blast. I hope you make money off of the time that you just spent.